Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Anyone here excited about March Madness? Watching games? Anyone gone to any games? I had the coolest opportunity. Someone gave me two tickets to the Gonzaga Grand Canyon University game, which I was thrilled by because I went to Grand Canyon University. And they lost, so it was over. So I'm not interested anymore, but um, I hope you're enjoying that. Um, we're, we're in a series going through the book of Mark. We're in chapter three. And what we've seen so far in Mark's gospel, a couple things. One is um, he, it's, it's pretty quick and fast and short and sweet. In fact, um, he uses the word immediately. So he uses it as often as my daughter uses the word like. And you want to have a daughter who uses the word like constantly? I mean, in, in one sentence, it's there like eight times. That's how Paul is with the word immediately. Because he's wanting, to, he's wanting to show that this is kind of acting quickly. It's going fast. Jesus is moving quickly. And what we've seen so far is Jesus' ministry starts with his baptism. And at the baptism, the Holy Spirit descends upon him and empowers him for the rest of the story. In fact, the incident we're looking at today puts that in question. Is it really the Holy Spirit that's empowering you or is it a different spirit that is empowering you? And Jesus' ministry really takes off because of he's, he's, uh, he's doing exorcisms. He's healing people. And so the crowds are just coming to him. But he's also attracting attention from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And those are some of the groups that we see coming to him today, as well as his own family coming to him today. And then last week, Pastor Donnie talked about this idea that, that he, he appointed 12, he's got a lot of disciples, but he appointed 12 to be these sent ones, these representatives, um, the, these apostles. And what's unique about that is, see, what he's doing, if you know anything about the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes, 10 of them are gone. After the Assyrians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, they were scattered to the wind. There were only two left. So when Jesus takes the 12, he's, he's reconstituting the people of God. And everything he's doing is pointing to a question. Um, who is this guy? How does he have the authority to do this? Because see, if this were just a reform movement, he'd been one of the 12. <laughs> but he's not. He makes 12, and what the Jews know is, well, who was the last person who made the 12 tribes? It was Yahweh God. So the fact that he's reconstituting, he's, he's uh, not verbally making a claim about who he is. <clears throat> and then we get to this passage here um, today in uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 35. And I want to do this, I want to explain the literary structure of this passage, read the passage, 
and then see if we can understand what is going on here. The literary structure. This is what's called an intercalation. That's too big of a word for us, so I'm gonna call it a sandwich passage, okay? This is what's going on in an intercalation or a sandwich passage. Is that, and, and Mark uses these all the time. He starts a story, he gets interrupted with the second story, and then he finishes the first story. I'll give you an example. Um, if, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, do you know the story about the fig tree? Jesus curses the fig tree, and then he goes to the temple. That's how Matthew tells it. Jesus curses the fig tree, it dies. Then he goes to the temple and he condemns it. And Mark says, oh, I wanna tell this in a cooler way. <laughs> so he goes like this. Jesus curses the fig tree, pause. He goes to the temple, condemns it. They come back and they see the dead fig tree. So the two parts of, these, of, of the first story inform the middle story. Does that make sense? It's sort of commentary. It's a really brilliant way to do it. That's what Mark is doing in this passage here. And, here's, and so it's an ABA kind of form. Here's the story. Jesus's family thinks he's crazy. So they're going to come get him. Pause. The religious leaders think he's possessed by Satan. And then he resumes the family gets there and he has an interaction with them. Does that make sense? That's the format of this of the sandwich story that Mark's going to tell you. So let's read this story. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Here's the first piece of bread in the sandwich. Then he went home. This is probably Capernaum, Peter's home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Okay, That's the first story. Pause. Here's the middle part. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's not, not just he's crazy, he's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, they said, uh, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. These are like mini parables. The next chapter, next week, Pastor Donnie's speaking, and, and, and there's going to be longer parables. These are like three mini parable statements. First one, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom, here's the parable thing, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Second parable, and if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Third mini parable, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house end of the third parable. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay. Second piece of bread in the sandwich. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came, standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
The crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So the first piece of bread on the sandwich, verse 20, then he sent home and uh, the crowds gathered so that they could not even eat. The family heard about it. They came to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, probably the family, a little bit concerned for the reputation of the family, of the clan, they come to seize him by force. And this claim that his family's making, it's not exactly what the religious leader's saying, but it's, it's, a, it's a cousin to it. If some, someone who's demon-possessed is typically out of their mind, right? So by the family saying he's out of his mind, they're not quite saying he's demon-possessed, but they're close, okay? Their claim is sort of a cousin <clears throat> to what the religious leaders are saying. And, and, and this is his own family. And this is, I think, the first thing that I want us to see here is that following Jesus may bring division within family. If, if you are deeply committed to following Jesus, it could potentially cause division within close relationships that you have. One of the most unpopular things Jesus ever said, one of the things that, <clears throat> frankly, I don't like that he said, are his words in Matthew 10, 34. He said this, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies <clears throat> will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross, follow me, is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus' point here is this. You're going to have to decide where your ultimate loyalty lies. At some point, at some time in life, we're going to have to make decisions. Am I ultimately committed to Jesus, or is there something that trumps that? Is there something that would come first that would get in the way? I remember... Um, a friend of mine, this is a number of years ago, he had, he had been a part of the LDS church. He was a Mormon, uh, had a wife, children, a, a part of a local ward, and he became a, a believer in the authentic gospel and, and realized that this, this was a fraudulent gospel and so rejected it, became a, a follower of Christ. His wife did not. And as you can imagine, it caused some strife and struggle and as the wife went and met with the local bishop, what she was instructed, and this is a common thing I've journeyed with a lot of LDS families, is, well, you need to take the kids away from him. You need to put on the social pressures in order to get him back in the community. His boss was also LDS. His job was hanging by a thread. There were all these things that were going to be taken away if he didn't renounce 
evangelical Christianity and come back to the LDS faith. And I remember him coming into my office one time. He said, well, I'm, uh, I won't be here at Timberline anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be back at my local ward. I said, I, what, what happened? He said, I can't not see my kids. And I said, emotionally, I get it. Emotionally, man, I totally get what you're saying. But here's the thing, you guys. At some point in your life, you may have to decide Jesus or fill in the blank, whatever it might be. And these are the hard words that Jesus says. Because what he's saying in this passage is something comes before blood. Something comes before other commitments. And you have to decide, what is my ultimate commitment in my life? In this passage, Jesus is called crazy, out of his mind by his own family. And throughout history, people who are serious about following Jesus will get the same accusation. I'm guessing many of you who have decided to follow Jesus have probably had that. Family members, old friends, that you're what? You've, you've become a what? You're, no, that's, that's absolutely crazy. And I think this passage here with Jesus is, is, is even prefiguring something that happens to even the apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 26, he's talking before Herod Agrippa. And as he's talking to him, Festus, who is with Agrippa, says this line that's kind of a famous statement, Acts 26, 24, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. And then he goes on to say, I am not mad, most excellent Felix, but I am speaking truth and rational words. And I would suggest that this is and will be increasingly said about Christians in our culture if we follow biblical views on different areas. For instance, sexuality. If, if you hold to Jesus' view, biblical views on sexuality, you're going to be called a lot of names. I know, I know a number of you guys have been tracking along. Some of you I know are, are there on Wednesday nights at our Fort Collins campus. We've been doing a series called Culture Wars and Christian Ethics, what the Bible has to say about race, gender, sexuality, politics, and more. And in that series, we've been diving into these very issues, recognizing that we're going to have a lot of pushback from culture because it's going in opposite direction. And there may be a time where I have to, I'm kind of forced to decide, am I gonna hold to a biblical view or am I gonna cave? Am I going to compromise? Okay, so that's the first piece of bread in this sandwich story. The middle, middle piece here is the, the religious scribes come from Jerusalem, and we read this in Mark chapter three, verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, not just he's crazy, more than that, he's, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And they were saying, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? The kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house, plunder his goods, 
unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. And he says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So a couple big questions in this passage that come out that are probably looming in our minds. One is, first of all, who's this Beelzebul? And then what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness? In the Old Testament, this name Beelzebul is two words together, Baal, Baal, and Zebul. Baal-zebul, Baal, you know, we say Beelzebub or Beelzebul. It means Prince Baal or the highly exalted. Baal is a Canaanite god. He comes to be associated over time in the Jewish mind with that ultimate adversary, Satan himself. So when they claim you're doing this by the power of Baal-zebul, Prince Baal, they're saying you're doing this work that you're doing through the Holy Spirit. It's, it's happening through the 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 spirit of Prince Baal himself. <clears throat> it's interesting, in the First Kings chapter one, if you want to read this week, Baalzebul is mentioned uh, four different times. The king of Samaria, he falls through some lattice in his palace and he's injured. So he sends one of his messengers, go, um, go ask the prophet of Baalzebul if I will get better. And Elijah hears about it and he goes, you know, because you don't have Yahweh, you're not getting better. <laughs> this, this God is not going to help you. But we kind of get the idea why they're saying you're doing this by the power of Baal-zebul because we've actually found some Ugaritic texts that have incantations on them in which Baal is invoked to drive away the demon of disease. So they see Jesus healing and, and they take Canaanite theology and say, you're doing it by that power. That's how you're driving away these diseases and that sort of thing. So that's who Baalzebul is, or Beelzebul is. What is the eternal sin? The etern- it's a warning. Jesus is quite serious about it. And it's a warning about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question that probably, probably comes to mind. Jesus says, in fact, in the, in the other parallel passages in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, Luke and Matthew, Jesus says, um, if you blaspheme the Son of Man, that's his title for himself, he's like, you'll be forgiven. If you blaspheme the Father, you'll be forgiven. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Well, why is that? I mean, we have the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why is it that a blasphemy, a, a blasphemy against the Father will be forgiven, uh, against the Son will be forgiven, but not against the Holy Spirit? How are we to understand that? If you were to, um, if you were to take a, a systematic theology class and you get to theology proper, which is the study of God, you'd look at the, the Trinity, three persons, co-equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you get to something called the economic trinity, which just means, do they have different roles? Do they have different functions within the Godhead? 
And we'd go, well, sure, that makes sense. The son died for our sins, not the father, right? Um, the, the father sends the son, the son glorifies the father, right? So they have different roles in creation, even. What's the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, we know in Scripture, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, in fact, let me read for us where Paul writes to Titus, chapter 3, and he mentions one of the key roles of the Spirit. Titus 3.3, 3. for we ourselves were once foolish. He's talking about basically all of us pre-Jesus were broken and messed up, and so he says it like this. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Here's the key passage. By the washing of regeneration and renewal, of who? The Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's, here's Paul's point. What role does the Holy Spirit play in our salvation? He's the one who woos us. He calls us. First, he convicts us of sin. <laughs> You're really broken and you need God, and then he calls, and he woos, and he coaxes. That's his role. So he, here's the point. <clears throat> you can blaspheme Jesus all you want. That's fine. You can blaspheme the Father. Those can be forgiven. What can't be forgiven is putting your fingers in your ears, hand over your eyes, and being resistant to the woo of God through his Spirit which that makes total sense. If I refuse the wooing of the Spirit, of course I'm not gonna be with God. Of course that can't be forgiven because I, I'm not asking for forgiveness. I'm resisting the Spirit's activity. Does that make sense? If the Spirit's role is to draw me to the Father and then Jesus' death is applied to me, if I resist the initial woo, I'll never get there. So blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it's not one thing you do. It's not an act. It's a consistent, ongoing resistance, stiff-arming of the Spirit of God, wooing me to the person of Jesus that I would know the Father. Does that make sense? It's not a single act. There's no one thing you do. Oh, darn it, I did that. I've, you know, as a pastor, I've talked to a lot of people who, out of, out of fear, and understandably, you know, they read this passage, and they're worried. I'm worried I've committed the unforgivable sin. First thing I would say is, if you're worried, there's a good chance you haven't. <laughs> a person who has lived this way of ongoing, continual stiff-arming is not worried. They're insistent. They're persistent on saying, no, I do not want you, God. Does that make, are you with me? This unforgivable sin is not an, an act. It is an ongoing, continuous lifestyle of resisting God. Um, 
Paul makes a really interesting statement. 1 Timothy 1.12, he actually calls himself a blasphemer, or he was, he says. He says, you know, but I was forgiven. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, he says. Blaspheming can be forgiven. A blasphemer can be forgiven. It's Jesus in John 6, 37, who says, whoever comes to me, he says, I will never drive them away. Isn't that cool? Whoever comes to me, I will never drive them away. But see, how do you come to him? Respond to the spirit. Because only the spirit can draw you. You can't do it on your own. So if only the spirit can draw you and you resist the spirit, you'll never Find him. But whoever comes to me, Jesus says, responding to the Spirit, I will never drive them away. And then the third kind of mini parable, Jesus, um, let me make a comment about this breaking into the strong man's house. I want us to look at the claim that is being made here. Um, Verse 27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder the house. What's the strong man? The strong man is Satan. It's Beelzebul. What's his house? It's, it's this domain. It's where he rules. What are his possessions? It's people under his control. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm stronger than the strong man. I've invaded his home, his realm, this world. I've invaded it and I'm taking his possessions back. Those people who are under his control, I'm taking them back. The spirit is calling them, convicting them, wooing them. I want them back. (laughs) I'm stronger than that power. And then finally we get to the second piece of bread here. And his mother and brothers came standing outside. They said to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about those who sat around him, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Here's what's so unique about this. In this day and age, who you are is a result of what clan you're in, what group you're in. Uh, In the West, we have this very individualized sense of, I'm an individual. That's not normal uh, in world history. It's certainly not normal in, in this world. Who you are is situated within your family. What you do brings either honor or dishonor to your community. And Jesus completely redefines that. He still says there's family. It's not radical individualism, but he says there's a new way of defining where you belong and who you are. And, and it's, it has nothing to do with your ethnicity. It has nothing to do with your background, your socioeconomic status. It's nothing, none of those things. It has to do with those who obey the Father, those who have responded to the woo the Spirit, and have found the person of Jesus and have access to 
the father. I think of this story, one of my favorite stories is Perpetua and Felicity. They're, if you grew up in the Catholic Church, these are saints, oftentimes saints of expectant mothers or young mothers. Um, Perpetua was a uh, upper-class woman. There was a lot of um, African uh, um, oppression going on in Carthage at the time. This is the second century AD. And Perpetua, though she had come from a high-class family, she, became a, she responded to the woo of the Holy Spirit, and she became a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And she had a slave, Felicity, and uh, she was going to be uh, put in prison, tried and executed, thrown to the beasts. And her father came to her begging for her to compromise. <laughs> please, please stop. Please don't do this. And he said this, daughter, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on your father if I deserve to be called your father. If I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Think of your aunt. Think of your child. She had a newborn child who will not be able to live while you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. None of us will ever be able to speak freely again if anything happens to you. And her, her response to her father was, I have found a new family, and it was my former slave who is now my sister. And that, she realized that that was her own loyalty. And they, dialed, they died for their faith in the arms of each other, sent to the games in Carthage, torn apart by wild beasts. And here, here, here's what I want to leave us with. I want, the band's going to come in a minute, and I want us to pray for ourselves about something. Here's my question. Are we the kind of community that someone who is divorced and doesn't have their spouse anymore walks through this door and finds family? Are we the kind of community that maybe someone who's widowed and feels alone can find a mother, a friend, a son, a daughter here and find community? Are we the kind of community where someone who experiences exclusively same-sex attraction, but because of following Jesus, they say, I'm gonna live a celibate life? Can they enter a family here? I spoke to a woman last service who has recently started uh, prison outreach, and she's writing letters and going and visiting, and, and she was in one of the prisons yesterday, and she said, the question the man asked me was, when I get out of here, I don't have anyone. Could I be accepted <laughs> in a family? Are we that kind of community? Jesus is laying out a blueprint for saying, this is what I want my body, my family to be like. That that your, our connection with each other through the person of Jesus is more solid than anything else, more solid than blood, that you can find family there. Oh, that we would be that. And so I want us to pray for ourselves to say, God, would you empower us by your Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God, to be that kind of community that Jesus has in mind here. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we, we long to fulfill 
the blueprint of what Jesus has just laid out here, that, that we would say we're family because we've thrown our lives in with Jesus. And God, would you also give us eyes to see, help us to be like hyper-vigilant, hyper-aware of people who walk into this community, God, who, who are hurt and lonely and broken and afraid and scared. And God, that we would offer the Jesus family to them. Help us to do that well. God, convict us by your Holy Spirit where we fail to do that. And then empower us, God, by your Holy Spirit to, to do that in ways that we couldn't manipulate on our own. And may the world see the beauty of that and be wooed and be compelled by your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities and much more, visit timberlinechurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.